Well, a new survey done by BC Hydro shows something that if you are a pet owner, you might not be surprised by these numbers. If you're not, you might shake your head a little bit. The survey found that almost three quarters of British Columbians admit that they leave lights on for their pets. They leave heat on, in some cases, the television, and it's costing them hundreds of dollars every year. So joining us to talk a little bit more about this and what was found in this survey is Tanya Fish, a BC Hydro spokesperson. Tanya, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for having me. What did you find most surprising about the habits of what people are leaving on in their homes for their pets when the pets are the only ones there? Yeah, so we put out this survey just to find out a little bit more about um, birch Columbia's electricity use habits when it comes to their pets. Um, certainly one of the most surprising results for me um, was the number of people that are leaving their, their TV on. We found about 40% are leaving the, the TV on when they leave the home for the day um, to keep their pet company. Um, we also found about 47% leave the radio or music on, uh, about 86% leave the lights on, and just about 90% of British Columbians leave the heat on for their pet, at least some of the time um, in the winter months. So uh, pretty surprising results for us. Um, I think the biggest one for me was the 20% who actually have recorded a TV show for their pet in the past, specifically for their dog or cat to watch at a later time. I found that one quite quite amusing. Um, we also asked uh, British Columbian pet owners uh, what uh, types of programming they like to leave on for their pets, um, which we found music, cartoons, nature, news, and sports uh, programming were the most popular it is, and uh, I'll put my hand up and say guilty as charged because here, yeah. I, I leave the and I make a point of changing the channel before I leave the house so that oh, the okay. food network is on for the dog. And oh, I, <laughs> I know the dog probably doesn't watch the food network, but it's about the sound and, and leaving uh, some noise in the house. But uh, this really does shine a light on how much it costs people. And how are you able to work out kind of uh, how much this is adding to hydro bills by by doing these things? For sure, yeah. So we did find uh, doing these things could could cost cost up to about four hundred dollars per year. Um, the most significant uh, cost for this would be around the heating. So, for example, leaving about three electric baseboard heaters on um, in your home if you're away from work, away at work five, five days a week, uh, could cost around sixty dollars a month. Um, so that's quite significant, especially you know throughout the winter months if you're doing that each day. Um, for example, and then also leaving the TV and lights on can cost about $3 a month, and that adds up to just around $40 a year. So um, as we head into the winter months, obviously things are getting a bit colder. We're looking to turn on the heat, you know, and maybe you want to turn the heat up a couple of degrees to keep your dog or cat warm. Um, so we do recommend, you know, looking at that, you know, actually just turning it down by about two degrees from your normal uh, temperature if you're leaving the home um, can actually reduce your heating costs by about 5%. So typically we recommend leaving the thermostat at 21 degrees when you are at home, uh, but then turning it down to about 16 when you leave. So, you know, if you want to keep your dog or cat a little bit warmer, uh, maybe finding a happy medium between those two numbers would work really well. Right, because even at that that temperature, your your cat, presumably uh, your dog or cat has fur and uh, they're out, they go outside wearing just the fur and they'll exactly, probably be yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most, we have, most of our dogs and cats have nice warm blankets and beds and all that to keep them warm as well. So yeah, I don't think, I think they're pretty happy. <laughs> um, the, the, I guess more people as well, and uh, this would help whether you have pets or not, if you like your house to look lived in as far as having lights on. I know a lot of people don't like coming home to a completely dark and cold home. Uh, do you find more people as well are using kind of the smart homes or they're being able to program it so you don't have to leave it on all day, but maybe you're able to turn it on, say, an hour before you get back? Exactly, yeah. So there's a huge opportunity now with these new smart home products. 
Um, so like you said, smart home light switches and smart plugs are great options. Um, again, for, for pet owners, uh, if they you know, leave the home during the day when it's still light out, starts to get dark, they can go onto their smartphone and turn on, turn on the light for their dog or cat. Not a pet owner, obviously, if you work for security reasons, that's a great option for, for you as well. So you can turn, turn the light on um, as it starts to get dark. And same thing with smart plugs. You can turn, uh, plug in your a TV or a radio or a music player to the smart plug. Um, and then again, you can turn that on um, from your smartphone wherever you are. So if you, your dog or cat wants to watch, watch the Food Network, uh, you know, there's a favorite show comes on about 6 o'clock, you're not home, you can turn it on for them. <laughs> Which I know sounds ridiculous, but I'm but not the only it. one. The survey <laughs> oh, shows. <no. laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess, too, it points at not just pet owners, but does point to uh, different ways, especially, as you mentioned, we're going into the cooler months or the colder uh, temperatures uh, ways. I mean, everybody, I think, is is looking for ways to save money here and there. And there are some some simple things we can do. Mm-hmm. So the one, number one thing we recommend um, is draft proofing. So putting draft proofing around your doors and windows is a great way to keep that cold air out of your home and that warm air in. And it's very effective and it's actually quite uh, low cost as well. Most of us can actually do this ourselves. You go to the hardware store, pick up the products, um, takes a you know a few minutes to, to install yourself, and it does make a huge difference um, keeping your keeping that cold air out, and it helps prevent your your heating system from having to work harder um, to keep things warm if that cold air is constantly coming through those gaps and cracks between your door doorways and windows. Um, so that's the first thing we always recommend. Um, also, you know, like I said, turning down that thermostat about 16 degrees when you're away from the home, 21 degrees when you are at home. Um, using a programmable thermostat that actually sets it automatically is a great option as well. So you don't have to worry about remembering to turn it off or turn it on or turn it down. Um, it automatically adjusts for you. Um, so that's a great option as, as well as we head into those winter months. I saw one of the comments uh, on our online story about this. Um, I guess it is somebody who does these things uh, saying that they're questioning how it was uh, tabulated or how uh, Hydro was able to, to come up with the figure of costing about $400 a year or how much. Uh, because I imagine it would depend if you have an old energy sucking TV compared to a newer one or uh, an older heating system. You mentioned baseboard heaters uh, compared to better heating systems. Mm-hmm. It must vary though depending on, on what your home looks like absolutely yeah so we do say up to four hundred dollars um so obviously individual homes and different factors um some people have gas heat versus electric heat so obviously that's that's a different factor there um depending on the type of products you have in your home if you still have some incandescent bulbs obviously those are a bit more of an energy sucker than leds um and again the older electronics do tend to, to use more electricity than a, you know a new energy star led tv um so the, obviously depends on the individual home and different factors like that. We do recommend, you know, going on to our website, we do have electricity tracking tools that are absolutely free for customers to use. And you can actually track and see your electricity use over time. You know, if you are going out for the day, you can kind of see, you know, how electricity use is, is tracking if you're keeping things on for your pets and, you know, make some adjustments there to save. Are there incentives for people as well or rebates or anything that to get people or are, are out there to try and entice people to do more of the, the energy saving? Absolutely. Yeah, we do actually have some uh, rebates in market right now. So um, at our select retail partners, we are offering about up to 15% off select LED bulbs until November 16th. And we also have about 20, 25% off of those smart plugs, those smart, smart home products I was talking about, um, 25% off those, um, as well as uh, deals on thermostats. So those are great, uh, great options to pick up. And those are till November 16th, that's retail partners in the province. Information on on the exact products can be found on our website, uh, powersmart.ca. 
All right. Uh, great uh, advice and uh, information there. Uh, Tanya, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Well, the United States has updated its volcano threat assessments. This is the U.S. Geological Survey and finds that two Washington state volcanoes are ranked as high threats. So what does this mean for the region? Let's now bring in our next guest, Glenn Williams-Jones, a professor with the undergraduate committee chair, also the undergraduate committee chair and co-director of the Center for Natural Hazards Research at SFU. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. What do we take from this that the geological survey in the states has updated the threat assessments and we find these two, uh, Mount St. Helens and Mount Rainier, uh, very high threats? They are very high threats. Um, It's not something that we need to be worrying about here in in Canada, but it's more uh, the process of identifying volcanoes that they need to spend more time uh, monitoring and studying because uh, they they see them as a high threat. And that's because of, say, the population near the volcanoes, the the exposure of of those cities and towns to uh, any kind of volcanic hazard like lava flows or or mud flows and um, ash deposit and things like that. So it's, it's, this exercise is new since 2005, and essentially they've done a, a full assessment of the state of their volcanoes and where they need to prioritize. Is it strange that they don't do it more often, that this is new since the last one done in 2005? I would say it's strange. You know, it does take a lot of time to do this kind of exercise. Um, you know, it would be great if they were doing it regularly, but... Uh, you know, it, it does take a big effort to synthesize all of this. So I think often, you know, you're in a mode where you're active, you're, you know, especially all the activity we saw in Hawaii, for example, all hands on deck trying to uh, to respond to that. Things calm down. Now you've got more time to also work on the background stuff. And, you know, taking this, this would be, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, many years of work bringing it together to uh, to do this. But it's it's an important uh, exercise to sort of see where we are in the state, uh, you know, for these di- different volcanoes. And you mentioned Hawaii, which I think those are the images and the most uh, recent stories that people will reference as far as the eruptions and what we saw there. Uh, anybody here as well that remembers back to 1980 uh, when Mount St. Helens uh, erupted or when we when when we, we saw the activity with Mount St. Helens then uh, will certainly remember uh, that. Is that something, though, that could happen again? Um, yeah, I mean, the and, and it's an excellent example of how volcanoes really don't care about borders. Um, but uh, with Mount St. Helens, the way it is now, following the 1980 eruption, we wouldn't expect to see that kind of large-scale eruption any time in, in sort of our future. It needs to build itself back up again uh, to that state. You know, essentially it blew the top off, so it's a very different volcano right now. But there are other volcanoes in the chain, uh, Mount Rainier um, and Mount Baker, actually, very close to, to the lower mainland. Um, these two are a concern because not so much on the ex- big explosion side of things, but actually because of all the ice pack uh, that sits on the, the upper parts of those volcanoes. And if you melt that, uh, you can generate what are called lahars, these massive mud flows that go like torrents of concrete down uh, the different river valleys. And in the case of Baker, that actually could uh, 
potentially have an impact on uh, on the lower mainland, say into you know the Abbotsford area, if the flows went the wrong way. And that's uh, one as well. And we, if we look at the region, and uh, in addition to Mount Baker, from from if you look at uh, Mount Rainier. Uh, you mentioned population, and and that's I think we we forget about the not it's not just looking at the eruption or just the activity, but it's the population. It's how close uh, we've built and uh, we live to uh, to these mountains. Is it not? Absolutely, um, and and this is it's a problem worldwide. Uh, if we talk about Rainier, uh, we know that some of the suburbs of Seattle Tacoma are actually built on deposits from earlier uh, mud flows from the volcano. Um, and inevitably, uh, you know, what's happened before you know, will happen again. Um, and so that's why, uh, you know, this exercise in terms of reevaluating the situation will help focus energies, which areas need to be uh, better monitored, where do more efforts need to be made in terms of education, educating the population in terms of, you know, how to respond if and when there is a, an eruption. And we mentioned, too, that uh, this, this takes a lot of work and it can take several years to get a really good assessment. Do we have better tools now or better technology, say, compared to 1980 when we were dealing uh, with Mount St. Helens? Are we better equipped to know exactly what's happening inside these volcanoes? Absolutely, we are better equipped. Um, knowing exactly what's inside of them, that is, uh, is kind of the million-dollar question. I would say we're still a long way away from that uh, state. Um, you know, the analogy I use very often when people ask, you know, can you predict a volcanic eruption? I'll say, well, look at how good a job we do at predicting the weather on the West Coast even three or four days in advance. Take that same level of chaos and complexity and stick it underground where we can't see it directly. Everything is inferred. But, no, I mean, technology is coming a long way. Uh, instruments are becoming more sensitive, less expensive, so we can deploy uh, many more instruments. We have regularized satellite coverage. All of this comes together um, to give us a much better chance at understanding uh, the volcanoes. But each volcano has its own personality. They're all different. And so, you know, what we try to do is look for similar telltale signals that something is changing. Um, but, you know, this is where we do need to have extensive, long-term monitoring of, of volcanoes. And with each one having a, its own personality, though, is there, what, what is it exactly that causes the eruption? Again, that's, that's going to vary a heck of a lot depending on the volcano. But, you know, if we scale, zoom right out, really it's pressure building up within the volcanic system itself, dominantly because of gases, volcanic gases trying to escape. Uh, again, analogy that I use, you take your two-liter Coke bottle and you shake it up, you can feel it pressurize as those carbon dioxide bubbles are trying to escape as a volcanic eruption if you take the top off. So that's really what's happening in, in most volcanoes, that, that dance between the gases trying to come out of the liquid, pushing onto the surrounding volcano, fighting that, uh, that balance between the mass of the volcano and the ground holding it in that's going to, to play a major role. But there's other, other issues, um, you know, in the case of Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, and, and actually, uh, you know, here in Canada, uh, Mount Meager, uh, northwest of Pemberton. These are big volcanoes that are ice-covered, and they're also rotten. Uh, they've been building up over millions of years, and all of these acids, 
acid gases that are trying to escape end up changing that rock into much weaker uh, rock. And so you could have landslides um, that even aren't directly related to a volcanic eruption, but that are really uh, hazardous. And uh, you mentioned off the top, it's not as though we need to be living in fear and afraid that we're in some path of destruction. Uh, but what do we do then with this information when we know that they, these uh, volcanoes, ones that we can see, are at the, uh, the top of the list when it comes to threats? Is it a question of monitoring or what do we do as people that live in the region? It is a question of monitoring and being aware of your surroundings. Um, you know, from a Canadian perspective, really it's it's a matter of saying, okay, we know these systems are there in the U.S. Uh, and in Canada. Um, how do we respond? And, and you can do that from a, a broader hazards perspective. The same thing as being ready for the next big earthquake uh, or, or a flooding, having those plans with your family knowing you know what are you going to do if there is a there's a you know a big earthquake how do you respond being independent for 3 4 5 days you know an earthquake hit that kind of preparation goes a long way and it can be as as we say multi-hazard be it a big earthquake or you know a, a terrible um ice storm having that ability to be independent and have everything lined up and having thought it through actually will also make you you know, sleep better at night. You know you've done something. Uh, indeed. And it's interesting you would say that because we often think about earthquake and earthquake preparedness, but not so much about volcano preparedness. Yeah, and, and that's normal, uh, especially in Canada where we've not had our Mount St. Helens eruption. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm pushing on Mount Meager because... 2,400 years ago, it did have a Mount St. Helens eruption. And 2,400 years ago is a geological blink of the eye. Um, so we have had them, but just not in recent uh, sort of you know, local understanding. Um, we had some very young ones just north of Terrace, uh, the Siax eruption in the 1700s. But again, it was fairly remote, uh, isolated, and before the, the sort of European colonization. So we do have uh, volcanoes in Canada, but it's not in our mindset. We're thinking more about earthquakes, about flooding, about landslides. And that's understandable. That's a human, uh, human factor. Definitely. Uh, we will leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this today. My pleasure. Well, after some amendments to it, the B.C. government's speculation and vacancy tax, as it's now called, will be pushed through as legislation because it does now have the support of the B.C. Green Party. And it's been the discussion topic for a few days. Many people are talking about this and wondering what it will actually look like and what it will accomplish. Well, my next guest is an economist and public finance policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives at the BC office and Alex Hemingway joins me on the line now to talk more about this. Alex, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. You've written a piece about this uh, saying that BC's speculation tax uh, is a key piece of the housing affordability puzzle. Uh, walk us through a bit of your reasons as to why you think this is a key piece of the puzzle. Sure. Well, and it, and it, it is just one piece of the puzzle, but it's an important one. Uh, the, the speculation and vacancy tax basically does uh, uh, a couple of things. Uh, it's going to buy. Uh, well, well, let me step to, uh, through two pieces. One is the uh, piece on satellite families, where we're going to have an additional tax on those households 
that have very high worldwide incomes but low BC income. So that's one component of the tax. And the other component is, is the vacancy bid, which is uh, on properties that aren't your per, uh, principal residence, if you're leaving those empty in very specific geographical areas, those places where we have very low rental vacancy rates, high demand for housing, uh, those are going to be taxed as well. And what this means is uh, it's an incentive to uh, immediately bring new rental stock uh, available uh, in these low vacancy rate areas and at the same time uh, raise some money that can be invested uh, in affordable housing. So those are two uh, components of the housing crisis that are addressed by the tax. Uh, and certainly one of the more uh, talked about parts of the tax, and you mentioned satellite families. So households uh, where your income it has very little or no income reported in the province of British Columbia, that would be the, the highest level, which is the, the 2% tax. Uh, but there mm-hmm. has been a lot of talk about residents and second residents and, and really the definition of empty, because where we're seeing a lot of pushback is from people who might have a second a condo or a second home that they use part of the year, not the entire year. Maybe they want to retire to it, who will now be hit by this tax. Right. So it's worth keeping in mind how narrowly targeted this, this is. There's actually... Uh, there's a, quite a number of exemptions built into the tax. So the government's estimating that less than 1% of uh, BC residents uh, will be uh, affected by the tax. And that actually includes the satellite families as well. So for the vacancy tax part, it's going to be uh, even less than that. Uh, if you're a BC resident, you automatically get a, a $2,000 tax credit against this tax. So that means that, as, in essence, you won't uh, pay any tax on a, uh, on an unused uh, secondary property that's worth uh, $400,000 and less. Uh, so you'll only pay the 0.5% rate on the value above that. So for example, if you have a if you're in the very lucky position to have a half a million dollar uh, second property that you're you're not renting out for most of the year uh, and you're a BC resident, you would pay a $500 uh, additional tax in that year. Uh, the revenues that are expected to come from this tax uh, annually uh, about two hundred million dollars. So how and you touch on that in the piece that you wrote. Is that coming from then the the highest level, the two percent that's going to be affecting the satellite families as much? Because it does seem that when we're also talking about the exemptions and how it won't, it'll be affecting less than one percent of BC residents. Uh, there seems to be a question of well, then where does all this money come from? Yeah, so some of it's uh, it's going to be a mix uh, of some coming from the satellite families, uh, some coming from uh, residents in other parts of the country, some coming from BC. What, one of the biggest question marks is just how much money is going to be raised by uh, uh, from from the satellite family segment uh, of the tax. Uh, this is not something that's been done before. Uh, the indications that we've seen from the government is that the uh, revenue estimates are. Uh, conservative. So it actually, it's possible that it could come in even higher than that, uh, driven by the satellite family piece. It has been, though, it's, it's worth saying, uh, uh, as a result of some of the uh, amendments that came forward, some were good, some uh, we didn't agree with as much. There's a reduction in the rate for out-of-province uh, 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 residents, uh, other than the satellite families, that will uh, reduce the revenue uh, by a modest amount. They're saying a maximum of uh, $30 million.
And if the revenue is, is, is coming in in that rate, then that would suggest that rather than rent out these properties, people are paying the tax. So how does that do anything to increase rental stock? Yeah, well, so I think what we're likely to see is is a mix of both. Some people are going to uh, rent this out to uh, 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 avoid paying this additional tax. You have to rent it out for at least six months a year to to be exempted, uh, and some people are going to are, are going to pay the tax. And one thing that came out in the amendments is that uh, and this I think should should be obvious from the beginning uh, is to that the funds will be specifically earmarked to investment in affordable housing in the regions uh, uh, where the uh, uh, funds are are being raised. So we do we've seen over the past couple of decades a significant drop off in. Uh, public investment in affordable housing, uh, beginning to ramp that back up again is uh, one of those other uh, crucial pieces of of, uh, addressing the housing affordability crisis. Uh, You mentioned this in the piece, too, and anybody living in a strata building that has rental restrictions will want to know about this, that for 2018 and 2019, if if you're not allowed to rent your unit out and it's not your your primary, you don't live there, uh, you'll be exempt. That changes in 2020. Does that not put people in a a rather difficult position if their strata still has the, the rental restrictions? They can't rent it out because they then face a fine from their strata, but now they're going to be hit with this tax. Well, so that's only if you're. Again, it's worth keeping in mind this is this is never applying to your principal residences for uh, for Canadians. So uh, that means that you're holding a uh, a condo empty uh, in an area where uh, 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 there's a very low vacancy rate. So that lead time of exempting these stratas for the next couple of years gives these stratas time to deal with that situation. And, you know, if, if there are many people uh, holding these uh, uh, condos uh, uh, relatively uh, empty, there, there may be pressure on stratas to change that rule. And I, I think that's actually a, a good thing. Uh, you know, as a renter uh, myself, uh, these forms of, uh, I, I would actually call it a form of discrimination against renter having these prohibitions built into strata rules. So it's a good thing to weaken them and ultimately uh, see them removed. Of course, you don't have to rent out your place. Uh, you can, if you own a, a condo, you can use it yourself. Uh, you can pay that half a percent tax, uh, which would be modest on on, a, on most condos. Uh, or, or you can um, uh, um, put pressure on your strata to change those rules. Uh, in Vancouver as well, with a new mayor, one of his election promises was to triple the empty homes tax in Vancouver. Uh, does that not uh, target a particular group of people, those who own properties in Vancouver, who will now face the provincial taxes as well as the Vancouver one? Yes, yes, it does. And uh, so I guess it's, there, there is a question of, of, uh, of you know, values there. And I think, you know, when we're in a situation where we're in this very serious housing crisis uh, uh, and we have actually extremely unequal distribution of uh, property wealth in B.C., uh, targeting those who are uh, uh, actually own extra property when many people can't own anything at all and are leaving it empty uh, when uh, many people can't even find an affordable place to live, that's a reasonable place to start uh, taxing real estate wealth. Uh, so what would stop the government then from, from looking at bank accounts and saying, well, you, you have a lot of savings. That's not fair either. We're going we're gonna to tax your savings account. Well, I haven't heard anyone uh, talk about that. Of course, uh, we do 
tax income and, and so on year to year. Uh, it, you know, it, one, one piece to keep in mind here is when you look at uh, the state of real estate wealth in BC, we've actually seen uh, since the mid 2000s an increase in uh, property wealth in BC of $1 trillion. Uh, and of course, uh, to begin with, this wealth is very unequally owned. So the top uh, two uh, fifths of the population own about 90% of the real estate wealth in BC. So all of that gain is flowing uh, largely to the top end of the population. So when we start talking about bringing in taxes like the uh, uh, speculation tax, like the school tax, that tax quite narrowly the top 1% to 2% of the wealthiest property owners uh, in the province, to me, I think people uh, see that as a reasonable place uh, uh, to, to tax back some of that wealth and invest it in affordable housing. All right, Alex, we're right out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the program.